Welcome to episode 120 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, yo, brother. What's going on? Not much, man. We have this uh, winter storm, Harper, and uh, we were supposed to get like 36 inches of snow, and we probably have, I don't know, like seven or eight. It's pretty lame. You sound disappointed. I am disappointed. We'll get we'll get to that. We'll get to that okay, in a right. little bit. Fair enough. So we Fair haven't enough. done affirmations and denials in a really long time. So before we get into our topic, why don't we bust out some affirmations and denials? Yeah, I love this bringing it back. Yes. So why don't you why don't you start us off? What do you got that you're affirming this week? So I'm affirming, and this won't be a surprise to anybody, uh, the Justification volumes by Michael Horton. So I'm like three quarters of the way through the first volume. It's very dense. It's very slow going, but it's extremely extremely good. Um, particularly in the first one, he really like goes after the patristics sources and really like unpacks them and really like explains them. And it's, it's really refreshing because um, the narrative you kind of hear is like, oh, well, so, you know, sola fide was a brand new doctrine. No one ever affirmed it. And he doesn't go so far as to say that there's like a fully orbed sola fide in the patristic era. But he does really demonstrate that this idea of salvation, um, particularly justification by faith and by faith alone, um, is all throughout the patristic testimony. Um, even if even if understanding what justification is is a little bit different, so it's not exactly the same as what we have in the Reformation, but he really goes a long way. And there's a lot of really um, well-read and well-respected patristic scholars that are speaking very highly of this work. So a lot of times you get someone who kind of like mines patristic sources and like pulls out quotes, um, but that's not at all what's going on here. He really digs into them. So it's, they're really good. It's expensive because it's a two-volume set. I want to say the two volumes are probably like 50 or 60 bucks, but it's definitely worth it, 100%. Wow, that's high praise. Yeah, it's really good. So how does this stack up with Horton's other stuff? Like, I know you love Horton. I love Horton. But how does this compare? Yeah, it's it's a lot more technical than um, his other stuff that you probably have read. So the mo- kind of the most technical work that um, is commonly read by him is probably The Christian Faith, which is his big single volume uh, systematic theology. And it's more technical than that. But prior to the Christian faith, he wrote a four-part sort of dogmatic set that's a longer treatment, um, and that is more technical than this. So this sits somewhere in between there. So I think I think our reader or our listeners, the average Reformed Brotherhood listener, would probably be able to make the way through it. Um, it's not so overly technical. And to be honest, like it's good to read things that are a little bit above your weight class because it Absolutely. sort of stretches you. Um, so I would say everybody should pick it up. It's really good. You can pick it up. Zondervan publishes it, uh, but you can get it at you know any major book re- uh, reseller, Amazon, WTS Bookstore, probably Christian Book even has it. So check it out. It's really good. Um, Justification Volume 1 and 2 by Mike Horton. That's a good word because there's nothing wrong with reading a little bit above your level, so to speak, because that's really how you get exposed to really new ideas that yeah. really challenge you to think. Yeah. So. If that's what that that's an example of that kind of reading, then yeah, I'm definitely going to take a look at that. Yeah, I think probably the thing that's the best in there um, is he really shows how the patristic testimony kind of leading up to Thomas Aquinas was basically uniform and for the most part was something that um, Protestants would maybe have some quibbles with but would be okay. And then he shows how there's this really steep decline 
in the Middle Ages, um, really with like three or four really influential figures. And then the Reformation is primarily reaction to the theology of that, like maybe century or, or two centuries worth of theology. So the, the narrative that it's this long thing and then all of a sudden Luther comes out of nowhere um, really doesn't hold up. And this this is the first book that I've read that really demonstrates that. There's a lot of places that have kind of said that, um, but this is the one that demonstrates it. Right on. So what are you affirming today? So here's further proof that you and I do not do any kind of substantial planning or prep when we get together to record these fun little podcasts. Because if we did, then probably we would coordinate more our affirmations so that they're on the same kind of level. Yeah. So yours was like very wonderfully spiritual, encouraging. I think you used the word patristic like three times and that you're not going to find that word by affirmation <laughs> at all. So this affirmation comes with with a little bit, I think, of a, a disclosure, and that is certainly not for everyone, and I understand that everybody has different convictions, and so I, I want to be sensitive to that. With that said, my affirmation is that if possible, if you feel under good conscience to do so, you should definitely make your own alcohol because <laughs> <laughs> it is a wonderful experience. And I, I just returned to doing a little brewing of some beer uh, yesterday. I hadn't done some for quite some time. And I love the process. It's a little bit laborious, but the day after when you, so you've set the beer aside, it's in this little container where it's fermenting and it's sealed such that no air can escape it. And usually there's a little tube coming out of it. And because the yeast consumes the sugar and that produces alcohol and carbon dioxide, there's always this little bubbling effect that happens. And I just want to say, there is nothing more satisfying (laughs) than watching your homemade beer ferment and it just bubble. And it just leads me to doxology because we live in this amazing, wonderful world that God has created. And here in my pantry right now is this still microcosm of organic activity where these little living creatures are consuming sugar that are going to make this delicious, delicious beer. So the process, the joy, understanding something a little bit about God's creation, man, it just is an amazing process. And it's not that difficult. You can just go out and get a wonderfully simple kit and do it yourself at home. I will come to your home. If you want to buy me a ticket... (laughs) <laughs> to fly wherever you are, I will be happy, more than happy to come and help you make your first batch of beer. That's like an outstanding offer. We should maybe do that next year at uh, Christmas. Yeah, let's we do it. We should definitely do that. We should each make our own beer, uh, except Adam, because he can't. And then we should uh, name it, and then we should have like a sampling party. I thought you were going to say name it and claim it. But yeah, yeah absolutely. And, well, we can claim it too, but... <laughs> We'll name that. And it's a claim super it. amazing process. Yeah, we'll brew it and do it. I don't know. <laughs> well done. Well, I mean, <laughs> again, I think we've talked about how we need to like create some kind of brewery where we create all these wonderful beers that are like tied to either. Yeah. Certain. You know what we could do? We could do a variety pack that's just based on heresies. Yeah. Don't say any though, because someone's going to steal our ideas. That's true. Yeah, but all the beers taste awful. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's like that. It, yeah. The, well, the the heresy series would be non-alcoholic. <laughs> it it would seem like the real stuff, but it's not the real stuff. It would just be kombucha. Yeah, exactly. Cut to everybody that's like, I love kombucha. It's so good. <laughs> it's not. So, so do you have uh, an accompanying denial? I do. And it's related to my intro. So I'm denying the weather forecast. And I get it. Like, I understand <laughs> that it's really hard. And I totally understand that they 
overemphasized because they want to make sure people take it seriously. But this is the second year in a row where we've had these predictions that it's going to be like the end of civilization, that that all, all of our buildings are going to be knocked over by the snow. People are going to be scavenging. It's going to be like a post-apocalyptic war zone. And then it was like I, my little Ford Fiesta didn't even struggle to get out of my spot to move when the plow came. So it was like nothing. And this is this is why it frustrates me is because last year when this happened, I stayed home from work and then I, I like I spent a vacation. Day. It was no big deal. This year we canceled church because we thought that it was going to be so bad and dangerous that we didn't want people to go out on the roads. So we canceled church and then it was like five or six inches of snow was on the ground when we would have been in church. So that's why I'm frustrated and disappointed about it is because we canceled the Lord's Day service. Like I don't I don't think that was a mistake to do. I think it was the right decision. Um, we don't sure. want people traveling when it's dangerous and, and there's nothing so um, – urgent about the Lord's day that we have to have people risk their lives in the weather and things like that. But, um, but yeah, the weatherman, like just, I don't know why you can't just be a little more realistic. Yeah. Cause there's a different sense of gravity in this case because yeah. it was happening right before the Lord's day. Yeah. Yeah. We, I, mean, I used so I, I used to think, um, that the weather forecasting was like imprecise. So there should be, a, we should allow for larger, larger margin of error. And then, I read this book, which I would, I would commend by a guy named Nate Silver, who's like a, a statistician and author uh, called The Signal and the Noise. And he has like a, a wonderful chapter where he talks about really the profundity of modern weather forecasting and the models that they have and how even though weather is contingent, that it's grown so much that really it should be much better. It's just yeah. that weather is like any other form of media where it just gets sensationalized. Yeah. And so something that really should be more precise and is more precise is just not communicated that way. Yeah. Yeah. Literally on Friday, um, I looked at the weather and it was like two to three feet of snow. Like they stopped even talking about it in inches and they started talking about it in feet. And then today it was like, we got seven or eight inches. Well, maybe have a foot by the time the storm's done, which for some people sounds like a lot of snow, but for New Englanders, that's like nothing at all. Like uh, 12 inches of snow is like my dog isn't even 12 inches tall and she doesn't even care. She just burrows <laughs> through it like a, like those worms from Tremors. She just pops out and – but yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a place I didn't think we'd go. The worm – like the worms from Tremors. Yeah. That's a good movie. It is a good those movie. Those things are ugly. Yeah, those Could you things imagine are if, uh, super ugly. Could you imagine if that – Take that entire movie, but then when the monster finally pops out, it's like a giant Westie. <laughs> I'm not sure whether that would be adorable or terrifying. Or I'm terrifying, leaning towards yeah. terrifying. Yeah. I, I think at some point, yeah, even as well-intentioned as that dog would be, it would just be terrifying yeah. in terms of size. Instead of trying to kill you or eat you, it just licks your face and then rolls over and asks you to scratch its tummy. Yeah. But it's terrifying because I mean, of how big it is because she, she probably could hurt you and not think about it. That that's exactly what I was thinking, and I'm sure at this point we've just lost everybody. <laughs> no, 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 we've not lost anybody. There's people who haven't even heard of the show that are like, I don't know why, but I have to check this thing out. Oh yeah, they definitely should. I mean, this is we're only bringing you good commendations. Yeah, like, go check out everything we've just said. Yeah, what are you denying? Let's let's get this train back on the rails, man. Um, you know what? I really don't think I have anything in particular to deny. I mean, I, this we had the same storm that you had, just not as severe, but it was also proportionally less severe than they anticipated. So it was the kind of thing where they were saying down here, like, everybody just stay home, stay off the roads, don't do anything. And I'm sure all the stores sold out of 
bread and water and milk and eggs. Yeah. Which again, goes back to my theory that apparently during snowstorms, people eat their weight in French toast and pancakes. Um, <laughs> I said I've that always, to someone like, the other day at work. I said, I don't know why, but we all want French toast during a storm and they thought it was really funny. So, yeah, I've, I've always wondered that. I wish somebody explained to me is it people, at least here, but I think almost, almost universally when people panic over snow and they go and buy those things. I mean, don't get me wrong. If you need milk, like by all means, go and buy milk. If that's like your normal milk cycle, go ahead and pick it up. <laughs> I just don't understand like when you go to the store and like there is no bread, I often think to myself, how long did people think they were not going to be able to leave their homes? Yeah. Like even on like the, the most huge snowstorms, we're talking about if you were stuck in your house for two days, that would be pretty exceptional, right? Yeah. Yeah. That'd be pretty crazy. So I, 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 all I can assume is that like people are just like, it's snowing out. Let's eat breakfast food all day. Yeah. And who doesn't have two days worth of food in their house on a normal basis? Right. We're blessed in this country. That, that's what I'm saying. Most people yeah. probably. And again, if, if you don't, I, I imagine like you're going and you're buying like, I don't know, like beans and ground beef like to stock up as opposed to, again, just bread, milk, eggs. Like those are the quintessential things, right? Somebody's like, oh, I got to yeah. stop off and get some milk and some eggs and some bread. I'm yeah. like, man, we don't even go through no- those things normally like in a week. So yeah. I, I can't imagine what I would do with them for a day. I don't know. It's crazy. Weather's crazy. People crazy. Everything's crazy. Giant Westies popping crazy. out of the ground is crazy. Be crazy. You know, it's not crazy, though. <laughs> what is not crazy, Tony? Reformed preaching by Joel Beakey. <laughs> Just slam this podcast right into gear. We'll turn it right around. Yeah, that, I mean, we definitely, we definitely rattled the transmission with that one. But yeah. you're right. And this is exciting because it is really the inaugural bookcast. It is. For this book. It and is. for all books. It's a brand new series we're doing. We love doing series. We finished our heresy cast, so we thought, just like uh, real beer is the good stuff, we figured instead of heresy, we'd flip all the way over to really good theology and talk about something great right. for a while. So we're going to go exactly. through um, Reform Preaching by Joel Beakey. So we're going to record once a month, uh, and we are inviting our listeners to join us and read along. So this week, we're just going to talk about chapter one. Uh, we're going to give like a rough outline, nothing super in-depth, and then we're just just going to talk about what we thought about the book when we were reading it. Yeah, right on. I love it. Let's do it. All right. So you have a little bit of an outline, right? I do. So this first chapter is entitled, What is Reformed Experiential Preaching? And I think there's a lot there just in the title with the words that he's using, because I'm not, I would say, prone to use that kind of language to describe preaching. Yeah. So he kind of starts with, what, what does that mean? Uh, and I love the way that he basically, he, I mean, Joel Beakey's the man, but he opens the book basically with this sentence, which is, perhaps you've heard preaching that fills the head, but not the heart. At its best, it's light without heat. Yeah. So I think that I was just like, okay, here we go. Yeah. We're getting after it right away. Um, so he starts in this conversation about how he's defining what experiential is. Is that something that you've come across before? Like this idea of experiential preaching? Um, a little bit, just sort of tangentially. So you read about it a lot when you're reading about the Puritans, um, which makes sense. I mean, Joel Beakey is like a modern day Puritan. He's at Puritan Reform Seminary. So it's not surprising that he's really cluing into this. But I think we, um, in the Reform tradition, or at least the modern Reform tradition, we kind of, we sort of bristle at the idea of like experiential or experimental preaching. Yes, um, and exactly. The older term for, and he talks about this, is experimental preaching. Um, we're not talking about like radical new preaching or trying something new. We're talking about like preaching that appeals to the experience of a person preaching that actually, um, 
generates feelings inside and, and attaches to a person's life and sort of uses the realities of a person's life to sort of pull them forward towards the gospel and the preaching. Um, but yeah, I hadn't encountered it a lot until I started reading about the Puritans. So I went through all of seminary and I didn't take any preaching courses, but I knew a lot of people who were, and I never heard anything about experiential preaching, which is a little bit disappointing. Yeah, this was a bit novel for me in the sense that I wasn't familiar with the terminology. And this is where he bases really the springboard for the entire chapter. Right. But what's interesting to me is he's basically defining – the whole purpose of the chapter is to define really what experiential or experimental preaching is. And I would say that like a good starting point for us is to talk about the fact that while he's saying reform preaching is, for instance, zeal with knowledge or reform preaching nurtures life and develops maturity like you were saying. Right. Or he spent some time talking about preaching that brings the truth of Christ into the center of our being by the Holy Spirit to produce love. That really what he's implying, though he's saying this is reform preaching, he's really saying that there is a right way to approach preaching. Yeah. And so that, I think, stands on its own because he's basically saying there isn't, of course, then by default, and though it may be obvious it's worth saying, an incorrect way to approach preaching, which may be the way, in fact, that we see a lot of preaching happening today. Yeah. Especially, I think, in a lot of reform circles, we see it today. And um, what's what I think is important for us to remember is we kind of instinctively recognize that there are right and wrong ways to preach. Um, right. But I think we think about it more in terms of content than we do in terms of style or method. Style is not the right word because I don't think I don't think that uh, Dr. Beaky would pe- like peg a specific style of preaching in terms of like very um, like dramatic versus very plain. I don't think that's what he's talking about, but he's talking about a method of preaching that sort of weds together a bunch of different things that we might think about when we're talking about preaching. But we're, we're so um, used to talking about the content of a sermon, you know, is the exegesis correct? Is the hermeneutics correct? Is the doctrine applied to the listeners correctly? Um, Are we reading into the scripture? Is it eisegetical? Those kinds of questions are certainly important, but we don't tend to think about things outside of that. Is the interpretation correct? is kind of the extent of what we think about a lot of times when we assess a sermon. Um, we might go to the next step and be like, well, that was kind of a boring sermon or I didn't enjoy that sermon, but we're not usually going to uh, analyze a sermon on the basis of like, did that really connect with me in my heart? Um, did, did that distinguish or discern between believers and unbelievers? Did it, did it, was there a call or a confrontation to, for the gospel involved in that? We don't always think about that as much. And that's why this is a good read for those of us who are not ministers. One, because I think it's going to give us a better appreciation for the task that they're undertaking and the seriousness of it. But uh, beyond that, I think what's also happening is we're going to get a sense for the proper standards by which we really should be critical of sermons. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think one of the things that I'm hoping to come away from this book with is not the ability to be more critical – about sermons, but the ability to be more discerning about sermons. And that's not just to say like being able to discern like the bad sermons and sort of walk away from those and, and be able to really uh, pull in the good sermons, but to be able to discern in the sermon itself, 
kind of what is um, what's being said, how is it being said, how does it apply to me, should it apply to me? All of those things are questions that we're going to answer as we right. explore kind of what Dr. Beaky is getting at. But I think you're right that he definitely is starting with the idea that there is a right way to preach and then there's a wrong way to preach. And there's probably, there's probably some that fall on a continuum of, of closer to right and closer to wrong that he would still say fall short of the ideal. Um, but that's something that you need to start this book understanding. Cause I think in our modern sort of evangelical reformed world, we are very gun shy of being critical of another person's preaching, except on sort of those objective bases. So yes. we can look at Stephen Furtick or Joel Olstein or Mark Driscoll and say, man, their ex-Jesus is really bad, so that sermon's not good. But what we don't usually do is we don't look at it and say, but Furtick is a very effective communicator. Mark Driscoll is a right. very effective communicator. Joel Olstein is an extremely effective communicator. So at the same time, there are probably some people that we look at that are effective communicators that we might let pa- let get a pass on um, some of the specifics of the exegesis because, you know, we, we, they're in our camp. So like Matt Chandler comes to mind. There's a lot of times that he is, um, maybe not quite so good with his, um, experiential preaching in terms of he's not so good at, um, the exegesis of a sermon sometimes. So he sometimes goes on these weird tangents, um, or he goes on these weird kind of back and forth interpretations. Um, that happens to every preacher, but we shouldn't let our camp get a pass and then narrow in on one element in another person's sermon. And that's what I'm looking forward to coming away with this is to be able to discern that kind of stuff a little bit better in the sermon. So let's get into this experimental or experiential preaching portion that's talked about here, because I think this is the root of this particular chapter. And from that grows all these other little branches that we'll kind of talk about in terms of how he outlines the the different facets. So he gets to a definition at the end or a working definition. And I love this idea of experimental knowledge, which Beaky puts forth. And he actually quotes from Calvin at one point by saying, basically what that means is it's when God shows himself present in the operation. Right. Now, of course, that's primarily through the scriptures, but I like that we're talking about experimental, the word we're using here, coming from the Latin root meaning to try, prove, or test. So right. we have the scripture as like this is foundational to Christianity, but this truth must also be experienced in the form of like actual and applied knowledge. And that should result in some kind of new previously unattainable affections and desires. Yeah. So it's almost like experimental knowledge is the Bible testing us. Yeah. And that's different than I think from how we often approach either the scripture or the preaching of the scriptures. And so this experiential knowledge versus the experimental knowledge, you know, experience wise, we want to know the truth of God by personal experience, like a real intimacy. And that intimacy should be encouraged by preaching. And I love the way that he lays that out. I mean, that's really different groundwork than I think for most kind of just like, let's, let's talk about what your pastor did this morning. Yeah. We often don't go here. We don't think about the Bible testing us. Uh, we think about us testing the sermon, like you just said. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, one of the elements, we've talked about this a little bit before about how preaching is, is in some senses, and we don't want to carry this too far, but preaching is sort of a replacement for the gift of prophecy, the charismatic gift of prophecy, right? So so in the Old Testament, and then I would argue in the New Testament as well, there's the office of prophet, which is a person who receives direct, direct inspiration from God and then communicates that inspiration most of the time verbatim, sometimes in a kind of an interpreted form, but t- delivers that inspired um, direct 
revelation of God to the people. And after the close of the canon and the cessation of those kinds of miraculous charismatic prophecies, the pastor is now the one that does that. But what's what's right. something that I think gets missed in that connection is that most of the time the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament prophets were confronting the people in a way where the words of the Lord were um, sort of a plumb line for the people. They were the standard that God was setting. Sometimes it was a, a standard of, you already haven't met my standard. And so this is a covenant lawsuit against you because you have violated the covenant. Sometimes it was more of a of an ethical teaching, a plumb line to say, this is the standard. You're in this situation and this is how I expect you to behave. But it was, um, it was very much the prophets were trying or testing the people. And so New Testament prophecy or preaching, post-apostolic preaching, does the same thing, that the, the pastor comes forward, he opens up the inspired word of God, and he delivers it to the people in a way that should serve as a plumb line for them in order for them to be able to look at it and say, the scripture is standing over me in judgment, and I'm either a faithful covenant servant who says, here I am, send me, or I'm an unfaithful covenant servant who refuses to submit to the word that's being preached. But either way, there's no, there shouldn't be a walking away from the sermon thinking, oh, that's nice. That was a nice sermon. I feel really nice right, about that. Right, exactly. Right? There's a reaction and a response. God, God speaking through the prophet or through the pastor in this case, God speaking through the pastor is confronting us and demanding obedience, demanding submission, demanding repentance, demanding all these things that he's included in the covenant. And we don't often walk away recognizing that. So I, I think that that's a, a very good insight from this book. That's why I love this pairing, because in the experimental sense, we're getting this understanding that, like you said, there is a standard, a paragon, a touchstone by which the scriptures are, in reality, judging us every time that we come to them. And at the same time, we're to leave there encouraged, arising with a greater glow of Christian love to live out those scriptures in an experiential way, to actually know God by way of personal relationship because he has invited us in under his mercy and through his grace. Yeah. And so it's as if those things are, those two things are held a bit in tension. But the beauty, I think, of what he's describing here is that if you get, if you're sitting under preaching that is experimental, and experiential, then you're going to get a, a, three things at least. One, you're going to get a sense of how things should go in the Christian life, because yeah. the scriptures are going to make that clear. But at the same time, the second thing you're going to get is that it's going to candidly reveal how things actually go in the Christian life, because yeah. there are struggles and hardships. And so you deviate from the ideal. And yet, of course, Paul is great on this in speaking about, like we talked about last week, he does the very things that he doesn't want to do. And then third, in the midst of you have the standard, you see what's actually going on, this kind of preaching reminds you that the ultimate goal is the kingdom of the glory of God, that Revelation yeah. 21, 22, which we spoke about like two or three episodes ago. So it's almost like, here's the ideal. Here's, here's this candid understanding that there are struggles and to persevere, you know, speaking about James 1, and then this grand encouragement at the end that the kingdom of glory is coming. Hang yeah. on, be steadfast. Yeah. And so to have all of that wrapped up in one package on the Lord's Day seems like a really glorious thing. I mean, what he's driving at there is I, I think this kind of leads my heart into understanding just how special and amazing the Lord's Day is in the administration of the word as a real means of grace. Yeah. All this really comes together when we get 
a, a proper understanding of what is experiential and experimental. I just love the combination of those words because we are not thinking in those ways. And whether or not the definitions are foreign to us because they seem a little bit more antiquated in that we're separated in time from how they were used then. I love that he's bringing them back. He's not shying away from them. I, mean, I would love us to speak more in those terms generally. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's really true. And, you know, we um, we tend to think that progress is always happening, that we, we always are moving forward. Things are always getting better. Things are always improving. And maybe I'm a little bit pessimistic, but that doesn't just that just doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, when you look at the state of the church, um, both in sort of the institutional sense, and then when you look at the state of the average Christian, um, you know, in Jonathan Edwards' day, the average Christian farmer was out plowing the fields with a Greek New Testament in one hand and was reading the Greek New Testament. Um, in Athanasius' day, people in the market were debating uh, whether or not you were a homoousios or a homoousios, right? So theological acumen and theological knowledge is – I don't want to say it's at an all-time low because the – the dark ages, right? The, the high middle ages probably was a little bit worse than we are, but maybe right. not that much. Maybe, maybe we don't realize how far we've actually come from the reformation when, um, honestly, like people just don't understand what's going on in theology. And, you know, our, our listeners all probably kind of run in the same basic circle of more, more theologically acute, um, than average, uh, people, Right, they hang out with other Reformed Christians who listen to Reformed podcasts, who read Reformed books, who listen to Reformed preachers, and what we don't realize at times is that we, if you listen to, this is going to sound really arrogant, but it hopefully it's not. If you listen to the Reformed Brotherhood, you're already getting more theological education just from listening to our silly little podcast than you probably than than the average American evangelical gets for their entire life in the church. That includes the sermon, Sunday school, Christian formation. Theology as a discipline just isn't, it's just not in the picture. And so for us to, to go back to some of the categories and ways of thinking and ways of doing things that existed in the, um, in the Reformation and in the, the era of the Puritans, we can only go back up from where we are. I mean, I suppose we could right. keep sliding into a self-imposed Middle Ages where the, the church the church proper in quotation marks is sort of the holder of theology and everyone else is just, they just go and watch and that's, that's their Christian experience. But I don't, we're never going to really get there, but to go back to an era where the average Christian was well-educated was spending time studying the scripture. And I mean, if you look at some of the more um, effective Puritan ministers, um, John Bunyan had no formal training. Right. But but John Owen still would say, I would rather go if I could go hear the tinker preach, I would give up all my learning. Um, right. All of those kinds of things should be driving us to say, yeah, these terms, this way of talking, this way of thinking about the sermon is a little bit old fashioned. Um, but that's not bad because old fashioned that era was a better era in terms of the health and the vibrancy of the church for the most part. That's a really good bridge into something else that grows out of this experiential and experimental preaching that's covered in this chapter, which would be the discriminatory nature yeah. of preaching. Yeah. And I think when, when we hear that, 
we are familiar with that in some sense because we want our preaching to be apologetic and unapologetic, so to speak. Yeah. But what he really unpacks here, which is different, I think, to some extent, is really the nuanced nature of that discrimination. So we're talking about preaching that distinguishes, of course, the Christian from the non-Christian so that the people are empowered to understand their own spiritual conditions and needs. But even beyond that, we're talking about, and what he really goes into well, is preaching that distinguishes the maturity and condition of the Christian, and then preaching that distinguishes the false professor, like the hypocrite, from the true believer. And there's a quote that he has, I think is is really, he just comes right out of the gate on this one. I mean, this is like coming in hot, hashtag all day. But this is what uh, Dr. Beakey writes. He says, ministers use the keys of the kingdom of heaven entrusted to us by Christ to open or shut the door of the kingdom by the preaching of the gospel of the forgiveness of sins. So he's on heavy. And this is where I think our hearts should be inclined toward our ministers who are given this task. But this, the level of discrimination that he's talking about here, both in terms of its magnitude and its specificity, I think was really impactful for me, at least as I read that. What do you think? Yeah. That's another one of those areas that we just we've sort of fallen asleep on the job. Um, we've we've the more that I think about our modern era, the more I see parallels between us and the the Church of the Middle Ages. Is that in the Middle Ages the Church kind of took all this power and um, absolved the congregation of any responsibility of knowing the Scripture, participating in the life of the Church. They literally came. And we're not going to get into much about Roman Catholicism, but they literally came to the church. They weren't the church. The people were no longer the church. They came to the church to to be given the grace that came out of the church. And now we've kind of entered into this era where we're in sort of this self-imposed revisitation of that, is that we've we've sort of outsourced theology, we've outsourced preaching and even understanding what preaching is and what the purpose of preaching is, we've outsourced that to the professional ministry class. Even though if you asked us, we would say, well, there isn't really a professional class. It's just people with a particular kind of vocation versus a different kind of vocation. But in practice, we've outsourced it to the pastors, the people who live above the clergy line, and we expect them to just sort of stuff our faces with milk and feed us, but we don't do anything about that. And where that ties in here is that most of the time in a lot of churches, a pastor who spent time in the sermon and actually did this discrimination kind of preaching, they would lose congregants. Not not just the unbelievers who are uncomfortable and leave the church, but they would lose Christians who don't feel like that's an appropriate thing to be doing. So like when you call out from the pulpit, you call out sin that's happening in the church, or you call out the fact that there are unbelievers in our midst, there are people that are going to look at that and go, oh, how dare you? How dare you do that? And I, I just think we have to get to the point where we are um, we're okay with that because that's that's the preaching of the apostles, right? It's yes. it's a mixed bag. It's it's a a common sermon that's often delivered to people who are Christians and people who are not. And the the pastor's job in that is to speak prophetically to those who are in the congregation who need to grow in their faith, but then also to those who need to hear the gospel and need to be regenerated by the preaching of the word. And so for me, one of the things that I've committed to after reading this chapter is to be more fervent in prayer on behalf of my pastor, because this is a really hard job. Even in a small church that we have, where it's, it's very possible, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's very possible for the pastor to really know every congregation member and know what's going on in their life and be involved in that and to understand the issues. It's still a very hard job to be able to 
to craft a sermon that can touch everybody personally, but not seem like it's being designed for each person individually. Like it's a really high calling and a really difficult task. So I've committed to praying for him on a more regular basis than I was before. Not that I wasn't praying for him before, but it just, it underscores how difficult and how important the task is. And this is something that we learned from the mouth of Jesus, right? I mean, he's the one that gives the parable of the tares and the wheat, which we've talked about before. But rather than making that just kind of like a, a tacit or passive acknowledgement as if to say, you know, well, it, there might be a time on a particular Lord's Day, we're going to have somebody sitting there who's not a believer. Uh, what he's basically saying is that this is, should be a priority actually in the preaching, not just it, it would be nice if this were a byproduct on a particular Sunday where people might feel convicted, but we should always be being moved toward the gospel in sense of sense, like you said, where we're being spoken to heart to heart, such that people are kind of naturally self-selecting as they leave, so to speak, uh, because they have been so impacted yeah. through the Holy Spirit, by the preaching of the Word. And I think what I was really moved by was that this is really difficult and that pastors have this mantle on their shoulders to bear, and that it's difficult because I, I'm not sure that we're often thinking as we're receiving that Word that we might need to be sifted in a way, yeah, and that we not, might need to fall under conviction because this discrimination, of course, like we just said, isn't just about, well, let's just separate out the easy ones, the ones that seem like they're on the fringes or the margin. Like, of course, that's what discriminatory preaching is about. Like, yeah, get like those, the plants that are on the rocky soil. You might as well just uproot them now because they're really not going to grow anywhere. But this is about trying to understand where we are in our own maturity. Yeah. And I really love that he quotes Joseph Hall. And I just want to read this because I, I cannot say this any better. I was just really struck by the depth of what preaching should accomplish in this discrimination. And this quote from Joseph Hall reads, The pastor's wisdom must discern betwixt his sheep and wolves, and his sheep betwixt the wholesome and the unsound, in the unsound betwixt the weak and the tainted, in the tainted betwixt the natures, qualities, degrees of the disease and infection, and to all those he must know to administer a word in season. I was like, wow, yeah. that, is, that is a hard job. And you're right, we should be then praying for our pastors that they might do this effectively because that really is for our good yeah. and for God's glory to sit under that kind of preaching and for that to be a priority in the preaching. Again, not yeah. just like a, a happy byproduct, like wouldn't it be nice if at the end of this sermon, you know, people felt that there was a weight of conviction and we often pray that way, but that they would go into it no matter what they're preaching about, that as the gospel hopefully is always being brought up to the surface that it is coming with a discriminatory force that has some magnitude for it, that actually calls people to attention, that makes people uncomfortable, even if that people, those people are mature Christians yeah. that are sitting in the pews and have been there for many years. Yeah. You know, this brings to mind, not to rip up an old debate that we have had in the past, but it-, it That's really our style, though. Yeah. It, it brings to mind, like, the Lordship Salvation Controversy. Right. And I actually had this argument with someone about Paul Washer the other day. And yes, you can send me your emails. I understand that he went back and listened to his own shocking youth message and said there were some things he said in the moment that he does. I get it. Like he, he that was an extemporaneous moment in his sermon. But if you listen to his sermons that are available, um, granted, there are lots of sermons that he's preached that are not publicly available. But if you listen to the ones that are publicly available and most commonly kind of masqueraded out as like, look how great Paul Washer is, he doesn't do this. And that's so have you ever sat in a sermon? I'm sure you have. But have you ever sat in a sermon where you sit there the entire time and you're like, this this doesn't apply to me. This isn't about me. 
And, and yeah, sure. you kind of walk away from that sermon, like, why did I just go spend 45 minutes? And this is the wrong attitude, but you walk away from it going, why did I spend 45 minutes basically listening to someone else's voicemail? Like that was clear. There was clearly right. a situation he was addressing and I'm not a part of that. Um, on the flip side, when you have someone like Paul Washer who hammers, he beats on the sheep, right? He pounds them with the law. He pounds them, pounds them, pounds them with the law. And the sheep walk away feeling like maybe I'm a goat. Like that's not discriminatory preaching, right? And that's right, exactly. that's the hard thing is is when we did the Lordship Salvation controversy episode, I, I put out a tweet a couple days later that said something like, "If if you leave the sheep feeling like they're not sheep, you're doing preaching wrong." I got this crazy backlash on online, which whatever, I don't care. But this is exactly the kind of the salvation or the solution to that is the preacher needs to understand his audience. And understand exactly what is going on with the group that he's preaching to, the, the particular people in the flock. And this actually kind of argues against sort of this idea of itinerant preachers or of um, really large megachurches. Like Matt right. Chandler hasn't got a clue what's going on with 95% of his congregation because it's just too big. Um, maybe he's some sort of amazing, crazy genius and he is able to keep up with all those people, but I would really doubt it. I would think that for the most part, he probably has maybe 20 or 30 people that he's really close to that he knows what's going on. And then another hundred, 200 people, maybe that he has some sort of cursory knowledge of, but all of the people in his church, there's a lot of them that are just, they're just faces to him. I mean, it, they can't be otherwise. I'm sure he tries very hard. They've got elders that take care of that, but how do you preach a sermon and be discriminatory or discerning is another good word when you don't know half of the congregation. How do you come into a church that you don't understand on some sort of itinerant preaching ministry? How do you do that and then properly apply the law and the gospel to those in the congregation when you don't know which ones are Christians, which ones need the first use of the law, which ones need the third use of the law? You don't know any of that. So I think it's something that for us to think about is that we need to understand that now we have a responsibility to be transparent and upfront with our pastor because part of his job is to discriminate what's going on in our lives and to preach to us, to preach sure. to all of us, but to preach to us. If I'm not being honest with the pastor about what I'm struggling with, then he can't do that. Right. It, what I'm struck by in hearing you say that is the way I'm kind of understanding what Dr. Beaky is saying is that this discrimination that comes in preaching comes with power, but it comes in a gentle form. Yeah. So there's a lot of times where I think pastors feel the need to expound in such a way where they bring a force either through their voices or their actions to really emphasize something. And I suppose there are times when that's appropriate. Yeah. Although anybody who knows Mark Driscoll, for instance, any part of his ministry, probably can harken back to that sermon where he starts yelling, how dare you, yeah. uh, to men in his audience where his eyes like twitching and he yeah. thought he was going to have a seizure. And um, you know we can debate whether or not that was the right approach to take. However, the beauty of Jesus is the way in which he comes with the full authority of God, and yet is meek in doing so. It's power, but power under control. That's what meekness is. And you know, I, I want to use a word that I just learned this week that I think is like perfect for the situation, and it's like a super sweet word. Are you ready for this? Let's do it. Mansuetude. Mansuetude? You like that? Is that a real word or is that a made-up word? No, that's so. This is a real word that means gentleness or weakness. So, you know, Jesus had this like sincere mansuetude. Like, he comes with power. And so, also, does this discrimination. I think the way that he describes it, it's the full weight of the gospel on your shoulders, such that you bow down underneath the weight of glory, not necessarily because somebody's yelling at you. And so, I think that's like the major difference that a faithful communication of it 
is not necessarily in the delivery per se, or in like the volume that comes with the proclamation per se. Yeah. But again, with just being faithful to the scriptures, because you know how much we talked about this before, but how much heresy in everybody's life would be reduced if we just spent more time reading the scriptures cover to cover so that we had a yeah. good sense of who this God is that we're talking about. And then by extension, how much preaching would be better if, of course, we're hopefully we're paying our pastors so that they can spend the time in the word to be discriminated, to be experiential, yeah. experimental. But how much better would that preaching be if they were able to do that, reading the Bible consistently and faithfully cover to cover to get to know this God? So that we would be on point with when we listen to something and we say, that just doesn't sound right. That does not sound like the God of the scriptures, yeah. even if we can't ch- point to a specific chapter or, or verse. So, I mean, one other thing that I want to I want to get to and talk to you about this chapter that really struck me is there was one thing that I am was coming into this chapter, I'll be honest, totally kind of biased against, not kind of, super biased against. And Dr. Beaky like flipped my perspective on this, and that was application because yeah. for the longest time, I really honestly thought that it's nice when a pastor leads you like through the exposition of the scriptures then of course kind of on to like here's some of the things you you might want to think about. But I really, for the most of my life, kind of considered application should be the thing that the good Christian is doing after they receive this word. They should be wrestling with it and going yeah. out. I don't know that it's always helpful or healthy for a pastor to give you everything that you need. And yet, here's what he says, and this is what really kind of flipped me around on this. So Dr. Beaky writes, people need to be spoon-fed when you bring them the word of God, not only in your exposition, but also in your application. They need to help, they need help to know what the truth implies for what they must do and how they must do it. Yeah. So I was really blown away by his focus on, he mentions the fact that the reformers and the Puritans spent many more times the effort in application than they did in discrimination. So moving kind of through these things that we've been talking about. And now when I go back and think about reading Flavel and Owen, I think about the fact that, yeah, these guys were like regular in their expositions. They would be dropping an application. Like they don't just wait to the end and say, in conclusion, here's what you should do. But they're just yeah. consistently beating you with, here's what you do next. Here's how you live this out. And again, I always kind of thought that application was like, hey, listen, if you're going to be faithful, you need to kind of step up and get on applying this yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I come from a different a different background and a different history. And when I was in Minneapolis, um, the sermon was kind of all application. And so I think for me, I reacted against that by sort of feeling like, well, just tell me what the scripture says, and then I'll figure out what to do with it myself. Interesting. Okay. And, and I got so, you. you know, this is another one of those like lack of um, discrimination in your sermons thing is, you know, I was a single guy, a single college guy. And around February, it was all about marriage and kids. Like that was just, that's the liturgical calendar for a seer sensitive church is in February, you talk about kids and marriage and romance and sex and as as a single college guy, I was like, I'm just going to sleep in because none of this matters to me. And and in the context I was in, there was so little actual scripture being exposited that there wasn't anything for me to latch onto to even draw my own application from. So you know, every every seeker sensitive pastor starts that sermon by saying like, now if you're single. Pay attention because someday you're going to need this or someday someone in your life is going to need this. But at the end of the day, like most of the people in your congregation that it literally doesn't apply to, it doesn't apply to. So I came out of that kind of, like I said, sort of allergic to application because I was like, just tell me what the scriptures mean. Just tell me what this passage says. Just tell me what it means. Help me understand the exegesis of this. Help me understand how you got there. And then 
I'll figure out what to do with it. And if I need help, then I'll come see you in office hours. Like that was kind of my approach on this. And I think the the best preachers, and we'll find this when we get into the specific um, chapters on different preachers, you're right. The application is not like the conclusion of the sermon. It's not like exegesis and then now here's what you do with it. It's constantly throughout the service, throughout the sermon, explaining not only what this means, but what it means for you. So you don't have to wait right. to get to the end. It's not like application is some sort of punchline to a joke. It's a part of explaining the text because the text is not there just to give us intellectual knowledge and content about God, right? It's not just a descriptive set of propositions. It has ethical dimensions. It has demands on our obedience and our life that we need to understand. And there are lots of texts, I would even venture to say most texts, that you haven't properly exegeted the text, you haven't properly understood the text until you understand what the implication for that point of theology is on your active life, right? I can understand the doctrine of the Trinity, but if I don't understand that the doctrine of the Trinity has implications for my life because I bear the Imago Dei and God is a triune God, you know, whatever that application might be, I'm not going to go into that. But if I don't understand that application, then I don't necessarily, I haven't necessarily fully understood the text yet. That's an interesting perspective because that makes me maybe understand why application can be so polarizing among Christians because either maybe you get it, a ton of it, and you're like, I don't even know what to apply here because you really haven't exposited much for me to understand what you're going to draw for application. It becomes Reader's Digest or like a seminar of just here's some good principles to live out in your life that, you know, try to encourage some sense of morality or you get the sense that what we're really supposed to do is make the application our own responsibility. And I really appreciated that he was saying, no, it really is the job of the preacher to do this. But then because it has been spelled out, because there's been time invested in joining those together, and really this is hearkening back to experiential, the preacher wants you to say, go and now experience the goodness of this truth in your life. Go by the power of the Holy Spirit, go live out these things. Don't just keep them as like an armchair theologian and consider them on the Lord's day and then move on with your life on Monday but actually go and live them out. And so here are the ways in which you should do that. I just became more, I guess, in love with that idea. Like that, that is, there is a good marriage there. And maybe what we're sensing is there's just a total imbalance in a lot of preaching. And either, again, it's like all of here's some things to do and here are principles to live by, or here is just an exposition of everything and good luck on trying to figure out and sort that out, how you might actually turn that around into some kind of right living. I mean, what he does in the end in this chapter, I think that's great, is – Beaky is emphasizing that, and this is great for us as reform people, if we focus on doctrine alone, what we're going to produce is a lot of argumentative thinkers. Yep. And there's no doubt a ton of argumentative thinkers in reform theology. If you focus on just experience alone, you're going to overemphasize inward feelings and you're going to neglect probably the truth and action that comes through the scriptures. If you focus on just practice alone, that's going to encourage kind of a man-centeredness and self-righteousness and neglect the saving need for Christ. And so I love that he's trying to balance all these out without excluding any of the other ones. He's not saying that these are mutually exclusive, but that really reform preaching is Bible-based, it's experience-based, it's experimental, it has a discriminatory influence, and it has application that's embedded, that's frequent throughout. Yeah, And that's like a super valuable, I think, understanding of what preaching really should be. I love that he's at least presenting this kind of high level of it, maybe this really high standard. And whether that's attainable or not, on any given Lord's Day, I think this is helpful for us to realize that there is a proper rubric in which we should be understanding what preaching is supposed to be when we're coming to sit under it, that we come with an expectation 
at least. Yeah. That this is what God wants to do through his people. Again, going all the way back to the beginning that there is a right way and there's an incorrect way. And if we understand what the right way is, then I think that really should inform our hearts. And even on Saturday evening, we should be thinking, here's what I, what I can hope to expect tomorrow when I come and sit underneath the means of grace by the preaching, that all these things are going to be at play. And so let's ready my heart to be aware of those things and to receive them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one thing that Dr. Beakey does well, and I'm sure he's going to unpack this more as we go through the, through the rest of the book is he's not just, this isn't just a preaching manual. It's not, it's not at all a preaching manual. There's a lot of preaching manuals out there that will tell you the mechanics of how to prepare, deliver all that stuff. What this is, at least in these initial chapters and I think throughout the whole thing, is he's developing a theology of preaching, right? He's telling you what preaching is, what God intends it for, how God intends to use it, how God has promised to use it. And therefore, if it's being done correctly, this theology of preaching does tell us not only what we should expect, but what God has promised to give us in his preached word. And so when we, just like you said, Saturday night, it's not just a matter of, well, I hope that the sermon is experiential tomorrow. I hope that it's discriminatory. I hope that it's applicable. You know, I I hope, I hope, I hope. No, like this is a, this is a, if Dr. Beakey is right, this is a promise from God of how he intends to address his people. And just as, as it says in, in the Bible, you know, if we pray in a way that is according to God's word, he is faithful to answer our prayers. So if we if we come to the conclusion, and if Dr. Beakey is right, that this is the way God has promised to meet his people, then we can pray with confidence and boldness that God will bless us through the preaching of the word in this way, that he's going to bless us because in the preaching, we are going to have an experimental knowledge of God. We're going to we're going to stand in front of the scriptures and the scripture is going to stand over us and it's going to cut away all of the crap in our life that is not godly and it's going to leave us with a lean mean god-fearing machine, right? If we if we come, we know that that we can trust that God is going to approach us and address us as individuals as well as as a body. Right, he's going to discriminate between different people. He's going to pull the goats and the sheep apart. He's going to take the sheep and he's going to say, "This one's got a broken leg. This one has an injured ear. All of this stuff that's going on." He's going to mend the sheep in the way they need it. And then we can also say, "Well, God, and God is also going to teach me what I need to do with this stuff." He hasn't just delivered me this word and then left me alone to figure it out. He's also promised to show me how, what it means to walk in faith and to trust in the Lord. So we can claim all those things, not in the weird charismatic sense, but in the biblical sense that we can pray in a way that is agreeable to his will and we can lay claim to these legitimate promises that are given to us in scripture for what preaching is and what it's for. Amen. So as we wrap up this first chapter, I think we'd kind of be remiss if we at least didn't kind of remind ourselves of where he kind of lands at the end here with his definition. So let me just read kind of as we close out his tentative definition, because I think it's great because he talks about so much of this stuff, goes into these wonderful nuances of describing each of these things, and, and they're worth in themselves meditating on and spending time yeah. really understanding. But I love his kind of concluding thought here, and it's this. Reformed experiential preaching is preaching that applies the truth of God to the hearts of people to show how things ought to go, do go, and ultimately do go, including his family members, his fellow church members, and the people in the world around him. Even more simply, we could say that the Reformed experiential preacher receives God, God's word into his heart and then preaches it to the minds, 
hearts and lives of his people. Yeah. I thought that was like a really wonderful way to bring together all these other things that he's spoken about. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a phenomenal book. I'm excited for us to keep going. I'm excited for what God intends to teach us, um, me individually, but us as a podcast and all of our listeners, we intend to teach us through this. And it really, I'm just really excited to go to the next service. That's part of why it's so like ironic that we didn't have church this morning is because like reading this book, I've become really energized to really just look forward to the sermon, which I, I love preaching. Like I love the, the sermons that our pastor puts together, but I, I'm like excited to go for the sermon. And that's not something that I've experienced uh, in a lot of times in the past. So this book is really kind of like, like driven me to be zealous for the preaching of God's word in a way that I haven't been before. And that's why the title of this book can kind of be like a misnomer in the sense that it seems like it's lending itself just to those who, of course, are doing the preaching. But right. it's in some ways ironic, but of course, beautiful that it is inspiring us. It is giving us kind of a new passion, a new sense of energy to be present there and to be good, attentive listeners. Yeah. And the other thing that I think, which we've kind of mentioned throughout this conversation, but I would, I'm drawing out of this and I want to encourage everybody is that given that we've kind of had a conversation about really, once again, the importance of preaching, but again, just the, I want to say, like, use the word severe, the severe weight that's placed upon our pastors every Lord's Day. And of course, basically every day in between as they're preparing. Would you consider this week reaching out and telling your pastor that you're praying for him? Yeah. That you're actively taking time to spend before the Lord in your own prayer closet for his personal salvation, for his personal piety, and for his personal preparation of the word. Yeah. And that you're behind him, that you're supporting him in those prayers so that they know that the congregation is as much a part of experiencing the grace of God and encouraging their pastors to preach in a way that's full of power and with discrimination, that they know that when they get up there on Sunday morning, that your heart is prepared to receive whatever it is that God has given him without reserve. I think that that would be something that would be a wonderful blessing to your pastor. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Well, Jesse, I think that this has been a successful launch of our very first bookcast. So I'm looking forward oh, I agree. to would you, next Would you month. actually go as far to say that this has been the definitive bookcast on the first chapter of Reform Preaching? I think it's, it is, yeah. <laughs> I think we scooped this one. I think we might be the only people who've done a book club cast on this book and this chapter. So you heard it here first, so here's folks. A, here's an idea. Is it possible? Like, I, I know we're not like super well connected, but is it possible we could just get like Dr. Beaky on at the end of this whole series? We could try. And he could just astound us with his knowledge yeah he'll listen to it and be like you guys missed the boat on every single point you guys totally didn't understand yeah we can we can work on that we'll have we'll have our people call his people yeah that that's true and by and our by, people i mean me yes. or or maybe you yeah i was gonna say basically our people is just, just near us. you yeah. that's great yeah so that's something to look forward to now we're setting ourselves up for like a major disappointment he's gonna be like oh no i'm writing another book that's okay <laughs> More than likely, what's going to happen is exactly what you said. He's going to listen to it and be like, I really wish these guys had chosen another book yeah, to discuss. exactly. <laughs> well, that'll be something for us to hear anyways. That'll be an interesting episode if he just lays into us for an hour about how terrible our understanding was. That would be great. I would, I would happily receive that word. Well, on that note, Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood.